For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. A couple of things to keep in mind is that everything in the book of John is written by the Holy Spirit that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what John tells us near the end of the book. And this particular chapter has our interest because Jesus here is proving that He and the Father are one, and yet He is distinct from the Father in that He is the Son. The occasion for this is Jesus' healing on the Sabbath day. And we're going to read that Jesus' healing on the Sabbath day makes the unbelieving Pharisees and Jewish leaders not only hate him for that, but that in the process, he makes himself equal with God. And then in response to their hatred, Jesus teaches the truth of the relationship of himself to the Father. And you will notice in that that Jesus teaches a couple of themes Number one is that everything the Father does, He does through His Son. And closely related to that, the Son does nothing of Himself, but only what the Father does. Another theme is that Jesus' own revelation, His works and His ways, are a witness not only to himself, but the Father. And the Father is witnessing that he is the Son. So in that section, just take note of the fact that Jesus is proving who he is, which when is rejected by the Jewish leaders is a rejection, therefore, of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man. When the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more 
to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. He sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man. But these things I say, that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of me, and if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? We read that far in God's word. 
Consider this morning the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 8. It asks, how are these articles, that is the articles of the Apostles' Creed, divided into three parts? The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second, of God the Son and our redemption. The third, of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we as Christians have an interest in the truth of creation and the truth of redemption and the truth of sanctification, the three great works of God that are listed here in this Lord's Day. That they are listed is important all by itself because it does set forth the three great works of God in time and history creation, redemption, and sanctification. One cannot believe in God and reject as the work of God any of those three works. Any faith that is a faith only in redemption to the exclusion of creation is no faith but rejects God. Likewise, any faith in redemption but rejects God's work of sanctification is a rejection of God and unbelief. But having said that, one cannot believe, one cannot worship and glorify God for those three great acts and works of God without believing that God is triune. In other words, there ought to be as great an interest, if not greater interest, in the truth that even underlies and is basic for believing in creation, redemption, and sanctification by God. That's what's set forth here. Indeed, that it is impossible to believe in God who works and does these three particular works unless one believes that God is a God who is one and a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This truth, in other words, is basic to our faith and the most basic truth of Scripture that we believe by faith. That this is true and not an overstatement at all is evident from this Lord's Day itself when it is commenting on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, we learned, is those articles of the Christian faith that it is necessary for a person to believe What is necessary for a Christian to believe? That it is what is necessary for a Christian to believe unto salvation. What does he believe concerning his salvation and therefore about God? And the answer is the articles of the Apostles' Creed. Right there are the basics. Those are the basic elements. But then this Lord's Day goes on to say, that all of those elements, all of those basic truths are organized under the Trinity. That what all those things, those statements, those doctrines that we confess and believe in the creed are all fundamentally about God triune. So much so that one cannot know and believe them unless one first knows God is triune. 
that this is the truth, even about our own salvation, is even creedal among us. This is something that we confess in our creeds. And you will find that in the Athanasian Creed. The basic fundamental character of the Trinity to the Christian faith is evident not only from the Lord's Day here, but the fact that the two great ecumenical creeds, namely Nicaea and the Creed of Athanasia, one from the 4th century and the other from the 6th century, are Trinitarian. They are about the Trinity. They are explaining the Trinity. They, along with the Apostles' Creed, that's their theme. That's what they're about. But then notice this statement in the Athanasian Creed itself. It begins, Whosoever will be saved, whosoever will be saved before all things, before all things with regard to creation, sanctification, or redemption, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except every one do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God, in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. Way back in the 6th century, the church was so bold as to say, one cannot be saved unless he believes God is triune. And one cannot believe anything else unless he believes that fundamental truth. So bold as to say, that is the Christian faith. Now another point brought out by the Heidelberg Catechism here is that this is the one, only, true, and eternal God. This God. This God who reveals Himself as triune. Not as something incidental. Not as something accidental. Not as something that's on the periphery of the Christian faith, but the very heart of the Christian faith. That truth is the truth of the one, only, true, and eternal God. The meaning is that there is no other conception of God that is true to God. No other conception of God whereby men are saved. Only this God, the God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Consider with me the one, only, true, and eternal God. The one, only, true, and eternal God. First, the union of persons. Secondly, the revealed word. And three, the blessed life. God, the one, only, true, and eternal God, is a unity or a union of persons. God is not simply one entity, one being, but that one being, that one entity, is a union of persons. That's the essence of the Christian faith. God is one being. That's the first part of this essential truth. God is one. There is one, only one, who is true and eternal God. That means two things. That in the first place, there is only one numerically that is God. There is only one being, one entity, one thing that may be called God and that is God. And, therefore, 
There is no other, the only one. That also means that however God is described subsequent to that, it may not violate that basic principle. In other words, when we go on to confess that God is three persons, we do not and may not and cannot confess that there are therefore three gods, three beings called God. There's only one. That is the universal teaching of the creeds of the Christian faith. Heidelberg Catechism here, there is one only true and eternal God and only one divine essence. Go to the Belgic Confession, Article 7. We believe in one only God who is one single essence. One God, one being, one essence. The Athanasian Creed stresses that, emphasizes that. We worship one God. goes on to say there is only one who is eternal, one who is uncreated, only one who is infinite, one who is almighty, one who is Lord, and one who is God, so that we are forbidden, in the language of that creed, to say there are three gods, or Three lords. When we say that God is one, we mean, therefore, that however God is subsequently described, whether as three persons or a God of many virtues, they are one in Him. That there must be a harmony and a unity, no division or separation in the persons or in the virtues. I emphasize now especially the aspect of God's virtues, because that too belongs to the wonder of God, and indeed is one of the great wonders, as we've noted before here in this church, of the truth that God is teaching in election and in redemption. Election shows the great mercy and justice of God, as does our redemption. Two qualities that, given there are sinners in the world, would seem to be at odds, would seem to be virtues that are not compatible because they are not with us. If I show mercy to the criminal, then I'm not being just with what he deserves. And if I show justice and give to the criminal what he deserves, then I cannot show mercy. But God shows us how those are compatible in him and him alone, and must be because he's one. There also cannot be then disharmony, disunity, and difference in the persons and their work that too deserves emphasis because the predominant thinking in the Christian church today, which thinking exposes itself as anti-Trinitarian, is that there's all kinds of disharmony and dysfunction in the being of God. God the Father, for example, wills the salvation of only some. He elects some and not all, we are told, in even Reformed churches today. But then there is another will somewhere in God that desires the salvation of all men and communicates that. God communicates in His Word that He has chosen only some. But God also communicates a contradiction that He desires the salvation of all men. Or, there is, for example, in the being of God, a desire to save all men, but not all are saved. The Spirit is unable to save all those whom God actually desires to save. Or, you have a son 
that only dies for some, while there is a salvation or desire of God to save all. Which is why such theologians that propose a desire, sincere desire of God to save all men, which desire is communicated in the preaching of the gospel, the word of God, you eventually must also have a Christ who atoned for the salvation of all men, actually paid for the sins of all men, and you will have a disharmony and dysfunction with regard to the Spirit, who either must indeed then save all those who are redeemed and chosen by the Father and Son, or cannot, or will not. Either way, you have no longer one God. One God working in harmony, one God working in unity. So much is that true that we must even qualify the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism here. When it identifies the Father with creation, the Son with redemption, and the Holy Spirit with sanctification. That all by itself is intriguing and important to the life of God. I'll explain that in a little bit, but take note that the explanation of this by Ursinus himself and by the Reformed Fathers who comment on the Heidelberg Catechism, we teach that that does not mean that only the Father creates and the other two persons are not involved at all. Proof of that is the creation itself. When in the beginning God creates, indeed the Father is on the foreground. And the Scriptures frequently associate creation and providence with the work of the Father. The Catechism is going to go on in just two Lord's Days to call providence the work of the Father's hand. The Father's hand. It's emphasizing that the Father is the source of all things. Likewise, election is often often associated with the Father. But to locate that exclusively with the Father is a grave mistake. Simply again look at the creation, and there we see the Father creating by the Spirit. We see already in the opening Chapters of Genesis, God revealing Himself as triune in the creation. There's the Spirit hovering over the darkness. Obviously, the idea is He will be the power by which God creates. And then, when it comes to the means by which God creates, He uses two means, significantly both pointing to Christ, namely His word, he speaks, and it is done. And God also forms with his hands. And with regard to man, he even breathes into him, showing without a shadow of doubt that all of the persons are involved in all of the works of God. And that's fundamentally because God is one. Not only numerically one, but one in all that he does, so that there may be no division of God into parts, no disharmony, no disjunction, no dysfunction. God is one. But God is also three in persons. Three persons. Now what the church struggled with, of course, is how do you explain that without there being a logical absurdity? The question is, how can God be one, and how can God be three at the same time? The answer is found in the truth the church discovered and developed, which is God is not one and three in the same way. If we would say that God is one being and God is three beings, you have an absurdity. 
Or if you would say God is one person and God is three persons, you would have there also an absurdity. But no, the church says, no, God is one as regards His being, as essence, that there is one entity, one thing called God, only one. But now there is within that being three, not now beings, not three gods, but three persons. What we mean by that is that there is within the being of God three subjects, three individual subjects of all the works and ways of God. There are, to use language we are familiar, three within God who say, I, who refer to themselves as I, and who, when referring to the other two persons, refer to them as you. There is one person who says I and refers to the other two as two. Likewise, there's another person that can speak the same way. That, in essence, is a person. Teaching us that, number one, a person is not the same thing as a being. One reason that we must believe this by faith, and man cannot come to an understanding of the Trinity except by faith, is because there is no example or picture of that exactly in all the creation, especially when we look at ourselves. If man could discover God on his own, and he would look at how he defines God, he's going to automatically define God according to himself. And with us, being and person are virtually the same thing. If I say, look at that human person and look at that human being, you're going to see those at the exact same thing. I'm one being, I'm one person. But when we examine ourselves and we examine God in the light of His Word and the attacks upon that Word, when we stick to the revelation of God, we are left with the profound observation that indeed being is not the same thing as a person and cannot be because God is one being and three persons. Now, what Scripture also teaches with regard to those persons, then, is that all three live in that being and therefore are called God. This is the great mystery of God. That although there is an individual distinction within the being of God. Three persons, three distinct persons. They're not the same person. They're individually distinct. One is Father, one is Son, and one is Holy Spirit. There's not three fathers, only one. Not three sons, only one. Not three Holy Spirits, only one. And they're all distinct. That they're distinct is found in their name. And yet, they live together as one, and so much are they one, that all the creeds, universally, with regard to this, go back and stress again the oneness of God. We may not conceive of the three persons in any way as different, in such a way that one is less than God compared to the other two. They may not, on the one hand, be three gods, and yet all must be regarded as God. The Scriptures teach the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And the best language that the church has come up with is that they're co-eternal. So they all have the same eternal character. Not one of them was made before the other. 
One did not come before the other. Even when we look at the relationship of the Father and the Son, and the Father begets the Son, we speak of Him being eternally begotten. The church rejected the notion of Arius that there was a time when the Son was not. Because that would mean then they're not co-eternal. Over against that, the church said they're co-eternal. They're co-essential. That is, they each share in the entire being of God. That is, they speak with one mind, one voice, one heart, one will. They all are equally holy, equally righteous. Co-essential, co-eternal. Now, that's what Scriptures teach about that. And what's amazing is Scripture does help us to understand. No, there will be nothing quite like God that we can point to and say that that's the perfect picture. No, God is unique here. And yet, to help us understand this is literally all around us. God has created the world in such a way that we are given to understand. And there are clues in the being of God Himself. The church, when it came to answer the question, how is it that God is the same, and how is God different, recognize the problem. The problem is that if you have three persons who are exactly identical, exactly identical in every way, how can they be distinguished? Now, we have a similar problem in that we can have persons who are identical. We call them identical twins or triplets. Um, they're identical as far, but yet you cannot argue with the fact that there's three different persons. Well, imagine now that you have an entity where there's one and three, and they're identical. There's a sameness there in every way. One's not before the other. One's not above the other. One's not important in the other. So how can they be different? And our fathers looked at the clues, they looked at the teaching of Scripture, and they realized the difference is in their relationship. You, they have a relational difference. The difference, the distinction, that, that which makes them separate, so that one says, I, to the other two's you, is their position or their relationship, which is way better put it, compared to the other two. One is father, the other is son. One is father because he begets, the other is son because he is begotten. And there is one Holy Spirit. There's not two sons, there's not a son and a daughter, there's not a father, a son and a mother. Our fathers noticed that one does not have a, what we might call, a normal relational name. Father and Son, we understand because we have fathers, we have sons. We understand that relationship. The Holy Spirit, therefore, is not a third person in the same way even as the Father and the Son relate. And the church went on to go see that the relationship is that the Spirit proceeds from one to the other. To put it another way, that which distinguishes the person, persons is that there's one who begets another in the other, the Holy Spirit. The Father begets the Son in the Holy Spirit, and the Son is begotten by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from one to the other and from the other to the one. That's the way to look at God. And if you want to go even deeper, you will discover that the Scriptures teach that God, therefore, is a union of love 
and fellowship. That God is a living God, wherein the Father lives a life of personal love. The personal love being the Holy Spirit. Begetting, loving, caring for, delighting in His Son. Begetting Him in His own perfect image. And the Son, who is begotten, is the revelation and the work and the life. He reveals the Father. There is in that a oneness and yet distinction. Now when we go to learn this, to understand this, we must go to Scripture. In other words, this is a truth wherein there are pictures, there are things to be understood in our own life and in the creation. God gives them. We'll look at those in just a little bit. It is first and foremost believed only by faith. This is the first and fundamental thing that faith believes about God. And furthermore, everything we learn and know about God leads and is directed to that. One may easily say that the goal and the end of our salvation is actually to know that life by being taken up into it ourselves. This is significant. It is significant that when one studies the doctrines of the Trinity and how the church arrived at them, the church very clearly understood that it could not violate Scripture. No matter what logic seemed to be applied, no matter what they thought was logical, no matter how they looked at it logically, logic would not get them there. One must believe what Scripture says. And Scripture teaches without a shadow of a doubt that God is one. One may not violate that principle, that rule, no matter what else the Scriptures teach. There is, for example, the passage that every Jew knew. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Shema Israel, Yahuwah Elohim, Yahuwah Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. On the other hand, the Scriptures teach God is more than one in some important way. The Jews knew that too. That's what the issue becomes with regard to Jesus. They knew that God revealed Himself in some way as a multiplicity. When in the garden already, when in the creation already, God significantly reveals Himself as a us, as a we and there are references in the Old Testament to God as Father, Son, or Spirit. But significantly, the doctrine of the Trinity does not come into its blazing light and glory and revelation until Christ comes. That's why all the doctrinal controversies over the Trinity are intimately tied to Christ. And why every controversy that Christ had with the Jewish leaders and the unbelieving Jews was about who He is. If He's God, then how can He be God and God be God? That had to be a fundamental issue. And if He's not God, then how can He be Christ and save? And Jesus, time and time again, has to show, and notice, Christ doesn't simply defend Himself as Christ. He doesn't simply defend Himself as the Savior, but always returns to this, I am the Son, and you cannot believe in Me unless you believe in the Father. If you have a Son, you must have a Father. And if I'm the Son of the Father, then everything I do and everything I say is what the Father says and says, what He thinks. Even in John Five, when you look at what Jesus is talking about, it's interesting. He doesn't specifically mention the Spirit, but the Spirit's being referenced. That's why the book of John is about as much that Jesus is the Son of God as it is about the Spirit. Why time and time again, beginning already in the first chapter, the first chapter is not simply about the Word, 
The Word who was God and the Word who was with God, that is, one who is God but distinct from God. How? Because He's a person. Does not only reference the Son as one who lives in the bosom of the Father, but that occurs by the Spirit. Every chapter is about the Spirit. How does the Father witness of His Son? By His works. Works which He accomplishes by His Spirit. What Jesus does, He does by the power of the Father's Spirit. It's all about the Trinity. All about the revelation of God triune. That's why it is so dangerous, so, so dangerous, to elevate one's logic over Scripture. If the church had done that, we would not know the Trinity, and we would all perish in unbelief. But the church always said, what does the Word say? Regardless of what my logic thinks, regardless of what my rational mind thinks, what does God say? What does He reveal in His Word? That I must believe, and then I must seek to figure out how to explain it. That's secondary. When one says, this is what makes sense to me, this is what's logical to me, and now I'm going to ignore scriptures or twist scriptures or change scriptures that teach contrarywise, that's unbelief. It is significant all by itself that the Catechism points out that God reveals this only by His Word, and immediately we're brought to the scriptures. But realize why that is. Because God reveals Himself through the Word incarnate. That's the great insight that is taught in the book of John. That's why Jesus is referred to as the Word. That was Jesus' great work. And Jesus reminded us of that over and over again. I don't come to reveal myself. I'm not here to do my own work. I'm not here to do my own thing. I'm not here to toot my own horn and witness of myself. I'm here to reveal God. And I'm here to reveal God as triune. And so much is that true, beloved, that we must see that everything that Christ does is to that end. You see, what is most blessed and most glorious and most wonderful in all the creation is God. Not the creation itself, no more than it is redemption itself or even sanctification. Those are all works of God. But those are works of God that He reveals that we might know Him. That we might understand Him and especially understand His life. Imagine, imagine that you are the most unique, wonderful creature in all the earth. Let's imagine that. Let, let, let's imagine that. Isn't that what you would want people to know? That's the idea of God. The most amazing thing about God is His own being, what He is. That He is a God who is one. And in that one being, He lives as a communion, a community, and a relationship of friendship. He lives in a bond of love. The persons love each other, care for each other. God is the God who is not only the original person, and personal God, but the original neighbor. You see, it's this that explains our life and everything around us. You can literally trace everything that God has made back to God Himself. It bears His stamp. Just like you can redemption and sanctification. Why is it that God created persons and not just beasts? Why do you think that was? Why, why do you think it was that the very first time that God reveals He's a plurality, it's just before He makes man, not just man, but male and female, two individual persons who will be knit together as one in the bond of marriage? Do you think that's a mistake, an accident? Why do you think it is? That God grows His church. God even grows the one blood of the whole world through procreation. 
procreation through marriage and family, wherein families consist of persons living in love. Why is it that there are two tables to the law, not just one? Regarding God and the neighbor, why do you think it is that love is so essential to human life and companionship? Why it is not good that man should be alone? The answer is because God is triune. Why is it that God not only creates but redeems? And not only redeems but sanctifies? The answer is because God is triune. It all goes back to that. Why is it that there is only one church, but that church is a multiplicity of persons more than you and I can number, and yet are one? Because God is triune. And that helps us understand God being triune. One and yet three persons. Is that not how marriage is? Two persons, one flesh, one entity, one marriage. The church a multiplicity of persons, and yet one. You see, beloved, there is an amazing, amazing thing about our world and creation. God shows this very mystery of himself, and it has to do with fellowship and friendship. You see, two things are necessary for that. If there is to be friendship and fellowship, two things must be true. Number one, there must be sameness. There must be sameness for each to enter into the life of the other, to understand the other, to love the other. Enemies cannot live together. They won't live together. We see that even in our own society where we do not naturally accept or receive those who are different from us. There must be a sameness, and yet those who are identical, such that they are only one, cannot live in a relationship. It takes a multiplicity of persons to have a relationship. I cannot have a relationship with myself. There's something wrong if I love only myself and can only love myself. A God who is only a God of one, without being three persons, cannot love, cannot be loved, cannot save, cannot redeem, cannot even conceive of a world to create. This, beloved, is foundational. This is the essence. This is the core. This is the heart of our faith. This is the God of Scripture. This is the one, only, true and eternal God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for the revelation of Thyself through Jesus Christ, which we receive by faith. Faith that unites us to Thee, such that we know who Thou art and the wonder of Thy triune nature not only with our mind, but with our hearts. And to know it by faith and soon by sight, when we shall embrace our Lord and see Him face to face. We long for that great perfection of Thy great work in time and history. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.